This is Speaking of the Economy, a podcast hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. In each episode, we'll hear firsthand from the Richmond Fed's economists and other experts about the issues they're exploring, from access to credit, to workforce development, to regional differences in economic outcomes. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond or the Federal Reserve System. Hi, I'm Jesse Romero, Director of Research Publications at the Richmond Fed. I'm talking today with James Stock, the Harold Hitchings Burbank Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University. His research focuses on empirical macroeconomics, monetary policy, econometric methods, and energy and environmental policy. In November, Professor Stock presented his research on the effects of carbon taxes in the European Union at a conference hosted by the Richmond Fed. Thank you for joining us, Professor Stock. Well, it's my pleasure, Jesse, and I'm really, uh, really grateful for having this opportunity. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you to the Richmond Fed for the great conference, and I guess thank you to the entire Federal Reserve System for getting on board with the importance of studying climate change. There's an awful lot that we need to learn about how climate change interacts with the macroeconomy, how policies interact with the macroeconomy, and a lot of those just fall right within the wheelhouse of the Fed, and it's terrific to see Fed leadership in this area. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Well, again, thank you for participating in the conference. I was wondering if there were any key takeaways for you from that conference. Oh, sure. The most important takeaway is there's big challenges out there uh, in terms of the macro effects of climate change and what the effects of climate change are going to be on financial institutions for which the Fed is responsible. We've already seen really significant changes in macro institutions in response to climate policy. Let me just bring up a very recent one. There was a lease sale uh, in Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, uh, just last week. And in advance of that oil and gas lease sale, which is something that the Trump administration had been pushing very hard, a large number of banks simply said they would not be financing any bids for those leases. And what happened is that a couple of the leases went to very small companies. The rest of the leases went to the state of Alaska. The leases generated $15 million of sales when they had actually been scored uh, as part of the 2017 Tax Act as generating, like I believe it was $900 million worth of sales. So a giant failure of the lease sales and a giant success for that, the realization that we need to keep those fossil fuels in the ground and, of course, preserve the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So that was a place where banks took independent action, probably based on, you know, I suspect it wasn't because they're environmentalists in their heart, although some of them might be. I think it was just because of based on financial risks associated with climate decisions and climate policy and energy policy. The Fed needs to be on top of all of that. Uh, the conference at the Richmond Fed was one that really drove home how important various features are, such as natural disasters and financial adaptation and so forth. So as you note in the working paper, the macroeconomic impact of Europe's carbon taxes, which you co-authored with Gilbert Metcalf of Tufts University, there is a broad consensus among economists that pricing carbon emissions is the most efficient way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If that's the case, why haven't we seen such policy implemented in the United States? You know, it's true that if it were up to the 
paid members of the American Economics Association, we would have had a carbon tax a long time ago. It's easy to point to politicization of climate. Uh, it's easy to point to how there has, in fact, been obstructionist behavior by certain interest groups. That's true for all climate policies. But I think there's actually some legitimate things about a carbon tax that are out there that, that need to be addressed. And it's worth pointing out a few of those. A legitimate concern is whether or not a carbon tax is going to have negative effects on employment and the economy. I mean, it kind of stands to reason, you know, you raise taxes, maybe that's not such a good thing. Raise energy prices, maybe that's not such a good thing. The jobs issue was actually a really big part of the stated reasons why the Trump administration withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement. That's what we address in the paper, and that's one important thing to be aware of. So we, we tackle that. But there's other ones, too. There's concerns about regressivity of a carbon tax. Now, that work in the last four years has really thought through how to make a carbon tax not regressive. There's concern among environmentalists that a carbon tax might not actually deliver the goods, uh, that it might not achieve the emissions reductions we need. There's been a lot of recent work on that, too, how to make sure that has a belt and suspenders. And then there's legitimate concerns about the effect of a carbon tax on the impacted communities, especially coal communities. That is something that economists need to continue to work on. We have ideas and people have been studying that. We need to continue work on how to support transitions in impacted communities. So turning to your research more specifically, the paper you presented at the conference focuses on Europe. I was wondering if you could kind of briefly describe the system of carbon taxes there and how that influenced your choice of which countries you were going to study. The short reason why we focused on Europe is that it's the really good data set for studying this type of intervention. There are 31 European countries in our data set, and 15 of those have a carbon tax. They have an awful lot in common. Importantly, in the climate sphere, they're all members of the EU emissions trading system. So they have similar climate policies. However, some of them have adopted a carbon tax, mainly a carbon tax that hits the transportation sector, and others have not. So putting on my narrow hat as an econometrician, uh, it's a great data set to study because there's variation. There's variation in when the carbon taxes were imposed. There's variation in the levels of the carbon taxes. And then there's countries they use as comparisons that don't have a carbon tax. So even with a very clean data set, I imagine there are quite a few challenges in teasing out the causal effect of a carbon tax on growth rates and other variables. So how does your research tackle some of those challenges? Yeah, that's an insightful question. It's worth just stepping back and remembering what the challenge is when we try to estimate causal effects in general. So the, the basic problem in estimating any causal effect is that for any one individual or any one entity or any one country, you only observe one situation. What I mean by that is Finland imposed a carbon tax, and so we got to see what happened in Finland after its carbon tax or with the carbon tax, but we never see the Finland that didn't impose the carbon tax. We see one of the potential outcomes, but we don't see the other. So somehow you've got to figure out a way to do that counterfactual, to construct that counterfactual of Finland without a carbon tax. That's the fundamental challenge of causal inference. There are a couple of different ways to address that, and we use those. So one of them is you use countries as controls. For example, Denmark, maybe that's kind of like Finland in a lot of different ways. Well, they imposed a carbon tax, but they imposed it at a different level and they imposed it at a different time. 
And so we can use those differences to try to identify causal effects of a carbon tax. The other thing we do is we borrow an identification method from macroeconomics, and that relies on a feature of timing with carbon taxes. In particular, carbon taxes need to be set in advance so that you can you know, set, basically set the tax rate for that year. So carbon taxes are going to be set uh, in advance, and that means that whatever the tax rate, the carbon tax rate is, it's going to be unrelated to future developments in the economy. What, what you need to worry about is you need to worry about some sort of feedback of the form that if the economy is doing really well, then we say, well, okay, we can basically increase the carbon tax or adopt a carbon tax. Or if the economy is doing poorly, we might say we better not change the tax rate. Well, if a tax rate is set in advance, any unexpected movement in the macro economy and GDP and employment is going to be unrelated to that. We can then look at innovations in the carbon tax rate and see how those innovations trace their way through the economy. So there is a lot of other research, of course, estimating the effects of cap-and-trade systems and carbon taxes, much of which you cite in your papers. What is unique about your and your co-authors' approach? I mean, broadly, there's two different approaches uh, to studying the effects of carbon taxes. The uh, traditional one, and I would say the dominant one, is to use a fairly theoretical or structured framework that then would be calibrated to various empirical data values. One of these, for example, is uh, the Hasted Goulder E3 model. And that's a computable general equilibrium model, and it traces through the effects of a carbon tax to a whole bunch of different parts of the economy. Those models have dominated the discussion, and they basically point to carbon taxes having fairly limited effects on employment and GDP. We view those as largely theoretical, and the uh, counterpart to that, uh, which is really quite complementary, is to look just at data and say, well, okay, it's nice to have those theoretical models. Now what really happened in the real world? There's a lot fewer empirical studies than there are computable general equilibrium uh, type studies. Most of those have studied fairly narrow circumstances, such as British Columbia or Scandinavia, and there hasn't really been systematic, large-scale focus on looking at empirical evidence on employment and GDP in a broad swath of countries. That's really our main contribution, is looking at this situation in Europe and looking at the history since 1990, when these taxes started to be imposed in some of the Scandinavian countries, and seeing what the, those effects actually are. And then there's some methodological things that we do, too, in terms of trying to really make sure that we identify the causal effect. And those are sort of more technical things in the paper. So that's a great segue to the question that probably everyone is wondering. What did you actually find um, about the effects on GDP and employment? When an undergraduate comes to my office and says they're really interested in something and then they ran some regressions and they didn't find anything there, so maybe they should find another project. Well, here's a circumstance where what we found was basically very little effect. We found no effect. And, you know, that's super interesting. Theory in the computable general equilibrium model suggests that there's going to be a modest effect. We find that if you look up to six years out, there's really small blips in both GDP and employment basically just noise. Minor correction, the actual, the small positive effect that we found was on employment, and that was in the initial year of a tax rate increase. So we studied these unexpected tax rate increases, and in the initial year of the tax rate increase, and then the subsequent two years, there seemed to be a small positive effect on employment. 
it's kind of tempting to tell stories about transition to green jobs or something like that, but I, I don't think the data really support that. I, I mean, these are basically just noise. They're within one standard error of zero. Uh, and then after the first couple of years, this effect just goes away. The better way to summarize the findings is that we found no effect on employment growth and we found no effect on GDP growth and that a carbon tax just doesn't seem to have any effect one way or another on the overall macroeconomy. Well, what about on emissions, which is, of course, the, you know, the purpose of the carbon tax is to lower emissions. Did you find any effects there? That is where you do find an effect. So what we found is that for a $40 a ton tax covering 30% of emissions, we estimated a reduction in emissions of about 4 to 6% on the sectors covered by the tax. And that's, a, that's our result. It's actually consistent with some very recent work by Jeffrey Dolphin, Ryan Rafferty, and Felix Kratos. So uh, there does seem to be an effect. You also note that that effect could be a lower bound, by, which I guess means potentially the effect could be a lot larger. Why is that? So first of all, I guess it's worth pointing out that 4 to 6%, that's a meaningful contribution. But at the same time, it's hardly transformative. We need to go to 100%. I guess there's a couple of reasons why that would be. So the main reason is that the tax in these countries falls on the transportation sector. A tax of about $40 a ton is about $0.40 cents a gallon. And that's not going to make a whole lot of difference in your driving patterns. Um, actually, I should mention that in separate research, we and, of course, many other people have estimated elasticities of demand with respect to gasoline. And a, four, a 40 cent a gallon in Europe carbon tax maybe amounts to like a 7% increase in a $6 price of gasoline. And if you multiply that out with elasticities, you get estimates that are completely consistent with those 4 to 6% uh, reductions that we found. So our finding at the aggregate level is consistent with micro studies of elasticities of demand of gasoline. And gasoline is basically, in our current economy, gasoline is a necessity. It's not a luxury good. So there's just not a lot of room for substitution. I want to stress this. The reason I think this is a, a lower bound is that First of all, this only applies to the transportation sector, and if it were to apply to, for example, the power sector, things could be quite different. Second, at the moment, and certainly historically in these data, there really aren't good alternatives to using gasoline. You can use a little less gasoline, or I guess in Europe, diesel, but they're not good alternatives to it like electric vehicles. So I think those account for these historically fairly small contributions and ones that we think could be uh, much different in different settings. So if you had to guess, what would be your, your best guess about the effects of a carbon tax in the United States? So first of all, on the macro side, I go with the R estimates. In Europe, a carbon tax basically was noise in GDP and noise in employment, and we just wouldn't see any aggregate macro effect. On emissions, I think the situation could be very different in the United States than we found in Europe. And, and here there's two reasons. So first of all, we don't have regulation of emissions in the power sector right now. There was an attempt to do that uh, through the Clean Power Plan and the Obama administration. That plan was stuck in the courts. The Trump version of that is going to be stuck in the courts and withdrawn by the Biden administration. So uh, we basically don't have any emissions regulation in the power sector. If a carbon price were to supplant Clean Air Act regulations in the power sector, 
Well, I think we'd see very large effects, and, and all of the estimates that I've seen suggest that this would really drive a significant amount of decarbonization in the power sector. In other work that we've done, we've looked at the decline in coal consumption uh, in the power sector and coal use in the power sector. The decline in coal consumption since 2008, uh, 2019 is about 40%, and that is virtually entirely because of cheap natural gas. So price is king in the power sector, and a carbon price would very significantly change the landscape towards natural gas and especially towards clean generation like wind and solar. So I, I think we'd see very effective deep decarbonization quickly in the power sector, something to bear in mind if you're thinking about achieving Paris climate goals. The second reason I think that we see something more potent in the United States, according to my estimates and those of others, my guess is that if the price of electric vehicles and batteries declines for the next few years at the same rate that it's been for the last 10 years, then we're probably on the point in maybe three years or four years at the most that uh, we'll have price parity between electric vehicles and internal combustion engines in the mass market. And at that point, that's just transformative. Even a tax of 40 cents a gallon could end up making the difference and getting some people to buy those EVs, which are a lot more fun to drive anyway and a lot cheaper to maintain. And then I think we could see some really big effects. Of course, it'll take a while for electric vehicles to really take over the whole market because the gasoline vehicles are going to last for 10, 12 or more years. But I think we'd really see a jump-starting the transformation of the transportation sector. So just to summarize, it'll have a big effect right away in the power sector, and I think it could have a big effect in about four or five years in the transportation sector. Thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed it and learned a lot. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you very much, Jesse. Speaking of the Economy is produced by the Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. You can subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts app or download past episodes from our website at richmondfed.org slash speakingoftheeconomy. Want to know more about the issues that the Richmond Fed has been exploring? Check out our regional focus a series of curated web pages that showcase economic research and data, reports and essays, and community engagement endeavors relevant to 5th District communities. Just look for the links on the homepage at richmondfed.org. The intro music for this podcast was composed by Ernest Barbaric, and the sound effect used in the intro was produced by Keith Holzman. The outro music was by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>